Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. What we're gonna do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. But I'm hoping today that my biggest concern is staying warm. I, I have a feeling he's taken me out to like the middle of the woods. I feel like he's going to kill me and leave my body here. So I think it's, we said it's what, 9, 10 degrees, something like that? Yeah. It is late January 2022. We are on the downslope of the Omicron surge. Oh, yeah. It just peaked. 2022, hopefully. And we are in the winter woods. We are at Chestnut Ridge County Park, yeah. uh, which is about 20 minutes southeast of Buffalo. And we've done a few episodes here. I think we did the Flickr episode here. Yeah, and you know, it's a little reassuring that we're here because if Bill did try to kill me, I could just run in any direction for five minutes and I'd be out of the woods. <laughs> Not even five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you don't know how slow I run now. That's true. And the snow is deep. Yeah. Uh, but we are in right next to a pine plantation. Looks like a red pine plantation. Oh, yeah. And this is a little section of the park. We're actually not very far from a parking lot, but we're in an area without trails. And I actually brought Steve here because this is a great spot, not now of course, but months from now to see pink lady slippers. Mm. So right up on that ridge just above us, within those red pines, uh -huh. lots and lots of lady slippers in early June. Interesting. And if you live near our area, <laughs> we're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally but, kidding. But for everyone else all throughout the world that doesn't live around here, <laughs> That's why they're, they're beautiful. You should see them. I kept my directions vacant. <laughs> right, right. There's a lot of parking lots in Chester. Yeah, Ridge. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but for those not in the know, we're kind of joking around here about that because some people like to go out and collect lady slippers, mm -hmm. which we don't encourage. Yeah. Appreciate them. What's that term? In situ? Is that it? Oh, in situ. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, I, I think, think you're right. right. All right. But the reason we are here today is not to talk about lady slippers. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're not here to talk about an animal that we are going to see today. I can guarantee we are not going to find our target species today. <laughs> I wonder what it is. So that's right. This is one of the few times I have not told you anything. You have no clue what we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah. You know, in the past, when Bill does this, he'll like give me a hint or he'll just straight out tell me if we're out at a bar or something. Right. <laughs> but this time I have no idea. But if we're not going to see it, okay, can you tell me this? Is, is its range typically including this area? Not this area of New York State. Hmm. Yeah, so down along the PA, New York State border, kind of like mid-state, Yeah. Um, getting over towards kind of the armpit of New York State. Is this one of the predators that has been uh, released by the DEC? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking about mountain lions or coyotes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we did a coyote thing, right? Yeah. 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 But this one, I'm going to start with a story. So have you ever heard of the Kinzu Bridge? No. All right, so last summer, uh, my daughter Violet and I, we took a, a bit of a road trip. We were heading down uh, into Pennsylvania to get some cupboards that someone had built for us. And on the way down, we stopped at uh, Rock City mm -hmm. in Olean, Rock City Park with large rock formations, did some exploration there. And then not too far away from there, just across the PA border, uh, kind of in Northwest PA, is the Kinzu Bridge site. So it used to be this old bridge that spanned, I don't know, something like three, four hundred feet, maybe even longer. I feel like I'm getting it wrong. It seems like it should be larger, but it spanned this huge gorge where Kinzu Creek flowed underneath. Okay. Uh, eventually flowing into the Allegheny River and then onto Pittsburgh. But in 2003, uh, a tornado came through 
and destroyed the bridge. It was in the process of being rebuilt as a, a tourist attraction. So what they did is left the damage in place and they created a skywalk where they have a platform heading out into the gorge overlooking the wreckage of the bridge. And when you walk out to the end of the bridge, there's actually a glass panels in the floor of the platform and you can look down. It's an amazing sight to see. Yeah, that's it's free, cool. it's just a state park. But it was pouring when we were there. Like just coming down in buckets. Violet and I were the only ones out on the bridge because everyone was just sitting inside the visitor center. Mm -hmm. But of course we had to go to the gift shop and she grabbed this stuffed animal. And the people there at the gift shop were exceedingly, almost disturbingly nice. <laughs> they were just talking to us about the person who made this, uh, handmade this stuffed animal right. and how great she is. And, and I was surprised Violet wanted it because it wasn't the most attractive animal <laughs> that you might think of. And You know, normal people aren't attracted to animals. But. <laughs> no, 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 no. Wait, wait till I tell you what it is. And I don't want to sound like I'm unfriendly or anything, but these people were so incredibly nice. It was just right. like, oh, uh, these people are serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that says more about me, but uh, it you just, just expect people it, not to it, be nice. It stood out. But yeah. when we got this animal, well, they're listening right now. <laughs> they're like, oh, no, I'm coming off too strong. <laughs> <laughs> when we went to buy the, the, the stuffed animal, it was $50. Wow. And they had been so nice that I just didn't feel right about taking it back. And, and that's say, how they get we're not, we're not spending $50 for a, for a stuffed animal. But we did, and when we got it home, did a little research, I was so impressed by the research that the person who made this animal, because they got these little details right. And the animal I'm talking about is the hellbender. Oh, cool. So yeah. this was a, a plush hellbender, yeah. which, I mean, how often do you see that, right? No. Um, <laughs> but, but these are handmade, and I want to give a shout out to the artist, Ellen Paquette. Uh, she has an Etsy store called The Wee Beasties, and when I checked it last night, it did say it's on hiatus. I don't know if she got tired of hand making these hellbenders, mm. uh, but it did seem like it was gonna come back at some point. <laughs> um, but again, she was just, it was very impressive the level of detail she went to. And oh. just searching around her website, I did find a blog where she talked about how she got to go to the Buffalo Zoo and see their uh, hellbender program where they're raising hellbenders. And we'll talk more about that later mm -hmm. on. Uh, but she modified her design because she wanted it to better mirror what an actual hellbender looks like. So for those of you not in the know, a hellbender is a salamander. It's often called the hellbender salamander. The scientific name is Cryptobranchus alleghaniensis. Hmm. And it's a species of aquatic giant salamander that's endemic to the eastern and central U.S. And it's one of the largest species of salamanders in the world. Oh, uh, large, like uh, spotted salamanders are really big. Oh, no, this dwarfs them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've personally seen them because uh, I actually had a friend that did work at the Buffalo Zoo who was doing his uh, master's program at Buff State College. And it was my friend Zach, and he had worked with them, so I saw him uploading pictures of like him holding hellbenders, and it just blew me away. What was Zach's last name? Keva. Okay, yeah, because uh, his name actually showed up on... A paper or two that I was looking at. Nice. And I'm like, I think I know that person. Yeah, yeah. I, I met Zach a couple yeah. times. So that was my next question: is if you'd ever seen one. So you've mm -hmm. seen them in person. In, in pictures. Oh, in pictures. Yeah. Okay. So these guys, getting back to what you were talking about with the spotted salamanders, if you're familiar with those yellow spotted salamanders that might get six, seven <laughs> inches long, and that would be a big one, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Hellbenders top out at over two feet long and over four pounds. It is the largest salamander in North America. When you see a picture of them. You're like, 
what is that thing? And it also looks like it's Photoshop because right. as as like a kind of an outdoorsy person, you know, I see a lot of the things that are possible to see in my area. And just one state down, there's these gigantic creatures <laughs> right. that, you know, are, they look Photoshop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's even there are they are in New York State. But I'm like, where are they hiding? <laughs> and, and you know, well, that, yeah. <laughs> that rolls right into what I was just about to say. I'm setting you up. Like Steve, hellbenders are secretive and slimy. But crypto. Con- <laughs> crypto branches. There you go. Yeah. Well, that actually has to do with their gills. I'm going to talk about that. Okay. But it does. I was going to ask what the brancus meant. Or, we'll yeah. get to that. Patience. <laughs> I'm but- jumping ahead. <laughs> we haven't done an episode in so long. I'm just too excited. <laughs> but contrary to what you may hear, they are not poisonous. They're really harmless, and they don't harm fi- fish populations. And honestly, hellbenders need our help. So uh, to paraphrase a, a famous quote, Ask not what hellbenders can do to you, but ask what you can do for hellbenders. <laughs> and we'll get to that at the end. But let's talk more about how they look, uh, because I'm betting a lot of our listeners have not seen a hellbender. And I'm hoping that they've seen salamanders. They do look similar to salamanders. I mean, you can look at it and know that it's a salamander. Right. At, the, uh, at the very least, people have seen newts. Okay. Like I think because the, the red F's of the Eastern Newt really yeah. stand out. I've seen, I see these things pop up on people's timelines and stuff sure. on Facebook. They so. take a pretty picture. Yeah, right? yeah. These guys, even though they, they generally look like a salamander, the, their size makes them stand out. And then their body is flattened. Their head and body looks like a salamander that's been somewhat flattened. They have very beady dorsal eyes. So up on the top, kind of spread out. They almost look fake. And then their slimy skin makes them stand out as well as these folds down their side. I think a great description is they look like lasagna noodles, these folds <laughs> of skin going down their sides. And that actually ties into one of their common names, the lasagna lizard. No way. <laughs> it's true. So they're not flashy. They don't have those, uh, those spots like those hip spotted salamanders or the, uh, the bright red colors, the, the red. Oh, redback salamander. Redback yeah. salamander. Yeah, we did an episode on those. Mm-hmm. These guys are brown with dark blotches. Some can't get to a reddish brown, but generally they're just kind of an all-over brown color. They do have a paler underbelly. They do have those short salamander legs. They have four toes on the front, five in the back, and there are white tips on their fingers. It almost looks like they have little white balls on their fingers with some specimens. But when I read that, I went back and looked at the hellbender, stuffed hellbender, and she actually had that four toes white tipped on the front five in the back and then the tail is somewhat keeled up and down for propulsion for for moving them through the water so let's talk a little bit about their breathing now explain to people you say breathing or breeding breathing we're gonna get to breeding okay but steve tell people because i'm betting a lot of people don't know Hmm. what do salamanders look like when they hatch out of their eggs oh they do go through like a metamorphosis too not like a metamorphosis it is a metamorphosis <laughs> and are they i don't want to generalize but are they all aquatic well remember we did the redback salamanders and they've evolved right. to have non-aquatic eggs they have to lay them in areas with high levels of moisture yeah um, so they have those heart those soft shelled eggs that do need high levels of moisture and most salamanders just lay their eggs in aquatic environments yeah so including hellbenders yeah What's that? What's that salamander that everyone really likes? And it's like what is it, what's called a neomorph or something. Like it stays in its like uh, aquatic young form. form. Yeah, it stays in its aquatic form. People have them as pets. Mud puppies. Is there another name for mud puppy? Water dog. No, that's not what I'm thinking. <laughs> a siren. 
No, I never had one, but but I can't think axolotl. Of, yeah, oh, that's what okay. I'm thinking of. People axolotl. have those as pets. They're yeah, like pink-bodied and yeah, they're they have the big gills. Yeah. yeah. So that's actually a good picture to put in people's head if they know what an axolotl looks like. Yeah. I mean, when a when a young salamander hatches from its egg, it has those branch-like. Uh, feathery, I think that's a better word to use, feathery yeah. extensions from its head. Those are its external gills. And, and they're feathery because if you have more surface area, you can grab more oxygen. That's right, right. absorb yeah. more oxygen. So salamanders, when they hatch out of their eggs, I mean, think of a tadpole, right? Tadpoles have gills, they have tails, but I feel like tadpoles look very different from their adult form. But young, or what we call larval salamanders, they look similar, they're just much more slender. Their legs are almost non-functioning, but they do have legs when they hatch out. Mm -hmm. And then they have those external gills. And typically, after several months, they will lose those external gills, develop lungs, and then be able to go out on land, like most salamanders do. But the hellbender is completely aquatic. It does not leave the water. If you do see a hellbender on land, chances are it's been injured, a person's put it there, something's wrong. Yeah. Um, so the young do have true gills, they have those external feathers, and then the adult hellbenders, they do have lungs, but unlike most salamanders, their lungs are largely non-functional, Oh. <laughs> uh, but they are used for buoyancy within the water. They do most of their breathing through their skin, about 95% of the oxygen comes through their skin, and a lot of salamanders do that, but most of that oxygen comes through those loose flaps of wrinkled skin, and just The like, lasagna. Exactly, just <laughs> like you said, those flaps of skin are more surface area. Right. So you're going to get more oxygen coming in. The more twists and turns they have, the longer the path is. Yep. And those, that cryptobranchus that we just mentioned, what that means is hidden gill. Got it. Uh, Because they do retain gill slits, even as adults. Yeah. So both males and females, they can reach sizes of up to about 30 inches. (laughs) So that's almost three feet long. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, and that makes them easy to distinguish from other salamanders. So you're never going to look at a hellbender and say, is that a spotted salamander? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there seems to be some discrepancies about how it ranks in terms of worldwide as the largest salamander. I heard, I saw anywhere from three, fourth to fifth, but it is one of the largest aquatic <laughs> salamander species, only topped by the South China gi- giant salamander, the Chinese giant salamander, and the Japanese giant salamander. <laughs> But it's not only the largest salamander in North America, it's also the largest amphibian in North America. Hmm. Now, doesn't surprise me. No, yeah. I mean, frogs, toads, what else is gonna be bigger <laughs> right. than this thing, right? right? A frog that size, though, <laughs> would be really cool. <laughs> and also very frightening. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the adult hellbenders, they weigh anywhere from three to five and a half pounds. I mean, that's crazy for a, a well, salamander. Yeah. And then they reach sexual maturity at about five years of age. Now, one thing that's gonna come up a lot is how much we don't know about hellbenders. Because throughout the research for this episode, I can't tell you how many different numbers I found for how long they can live. I found anywhere from the limit of how long they can live from 25 to 60 years. And whether in captivity or in the wild, those terms were just used at either end of the spectrum. Like maybe they can live to 60 years in the wild, maybe they can live to 60 years in captivity. Nobody seemed really sure. I actually have a question in terms of their longevity and maturity. Five years to hit maturity seems kind of like long for me. It does. And you're going to see that when it comes to like their reproduction, it's it's strange. It doesn't fit with most of the amphibians, Hmm. how you think of most amphibians, especially in the northeast and the east of North America. Um, And I really couldn't find 
many explanations as to why. <laughs> All right. Uh, they exhibit no sexual dimorphism. What does that mean? The males and females don't look any different from each other. Except during the fall mating season when, like Steve, males have a bulging ring around their cloacal glands. Oh. Right. <laughs> well, cloacal, I feel like that has to do with reproduction because we, we look at cloacas in birds yep. when we do banding. That's right. So and when I say we do banding, I mean when Bill does banding because I haven't shown up in the last year. <laughs> in a while. It's yeah. A while. You're scared of COVID. We can. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, so, there's limited people now. I mean, for a little while now, you guys have true. been limiting how many people can the show up. The past two years, we've, we've yeah. you've had to sign up. Yeah. So, it's too much work. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one species that, within their range, there is some overlap that you might confuse them with, especially if it's a young hellbender, is the common mud puppy, which, which I mentioned a minute ago. That's Nectaris maculosus. So the mud puppies, they retain those external gills <laughs> throughout their life. And they have four toes on each hind foot, Whereas, remember, the hellbenders have five, five so that's yeah. where tell them apart. And the average size of a mud puppy is anywhere from a foot to about 16 inches. Okay. Like, 16 inches is, is the high end. They could get a little bigger. Yeah. So, full-grown hellbender adults are usually larger than even the biggest mud puppy. <laughs> and then, again, if you see a, a hellbender, it just looks more flattened. I mean, it looks like it's been sat on or something. <laughs> uh, so, unlike other salamanders, another thing that separates hellbenders is they can't regrow their limbs. Oh, interesting. And during the, the 80s and even into the 90s, biologists would sometimes tag them by clipping off one of their toes. Oh, I'm so <laughs> yeah. glad that I'm the species that biologists belong to <laughs> and, not, <laughs> and not a species they study. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Actually, biologists do study humans, I guess, but, <laughs> but, not, but not like that. Not, not, it's a much different. We're not clipping off toes. <laughs> Maybe one time. We not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we used to do a lot worse than that. Yeah. Right? And I feel like I have to say again that they are not poisonous, nor are they venomous. Mm. They really cannot hurt you. They do have tiny teeth. As far as I can tell, they have two rows of tiny teeth <laughs> on their upper mandible and then one row of teeth uh, on their bottom mandible, but they're very small. They are sharp enough to break human skin, but I read one researcher's account that you know, she said she's handled over 200 hellbenders in the wild and never had one even try to bite her. Hmm. But just reading the literature, especially from decades past, um, one of the problems that hellbenders faced is people's misconceptions of these as dangerous animals, as animals that will bite you, that will hurt hmm. you, that will poison you. So they were destroyed. There were bounties on, on these animals, and we'll talk wow. about that. So the origin of the name is not exactly clear. Uh, hellbender, the common name. Mm -hmm. um, the two theories that I came across several times from several accounts didn't seem very strong to me. One was that settlers thought it was a creature from hell where it's bent on returning. And I found that in a lot of sources, which makes me wonder, is this just one thing that was repeated in many sources? Or? I think it was a poet or something or a person that thought they were clever at one point. But then again, how did it, that, that's a good point. Maybe I'm being too critical because how did it get the name in the first place? Like, it's not a random, right. you know, two words shoved together, so. And another was that the undulating skin reminded people of the horrible tortures of the infernal regions. Mm. Again, not sure about that one. But in reality, it's a harmless aquatic salamander. <laughs> um, other regional names, we already mentioned one, my favorite. The, the lasagna lizard. lizard. You got it. <laughs> the devil dog, the mud devil. I like this one, Grampus. Grampus. <laughs> Play on Krampus. The Grampus, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the Allegheny alligator. The mud dog, the hell cat, thunder lizard, walking catfish, and this is my absolute favorite, the snot otter. The snot otter. That one makes sense. But the thunder lizard, 
<laughs> why? Good it, question. Yeah. That one did not jump out at me until you mentioned why, why thunder lizards. Right. Is it particularly loud? Or? It doesn't make any know. noise. <laughs> so the taxonomy, we, also, we already talked about cryptobranchus. That's from the Greek for hidden gill. Yeah. It is the only existing member of its genus. Mm, okay. So the only one. The family that it belongs to, cryptobranchidae, the other related members in that family I already mentioned the Japanese and those Chinese giant salamanders yeah and again these are all aquatic strictly aquatic salamanders how did close relatives get so far apart that's a very good question <laughs> I should have looked into that no 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 it, I think it's because of the way continents used to be oh, connected sure. <laughs> but I, I would like a little more information right. on and, how and growing happened. and shrinking of population ranges and but then it, why aren't there any other salamanders like this in North America I mean you know what I mean isn't there some type of law where larger species tend to become extinct more quickly than small species oh. or something? I don't, I don't know. I remember um, reading about it at one point. It sounds but, like it should be a law. Right. You, you would think so, but um, <laughs> we'll especially if with like declining resources, but and there's that happens periodically. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk about its range. Um, and that leads into to what we were just talking about. It has a, a fairly confined range to here in the, the eastern U.S. So imagine a, a map of the eastern U.S. And then you have the, the Hellbenders Range is starting along the southern edge of New York State. Around um, Allegheny, um, stretching over to where uh, New York, what I call the armpit of New York, where it starts to stretch down like towards New York City. And then their range extends. <laughs> is, is that why? Because it resembles an armpit? Or, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> More than what I'm, I'm not making a comment about that area. Okay. That's what State. I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> not making a judgment call. Yeah. So then their range extends through Pennsylvania, through West Virginia, down all the way to Tennessee. And it really stretches down to Northwestern Georgia. There's even a small bit over in Oklahoma and Kansas. Within the range, the species, it's really restricted to the Susquehanna River, uh, which extends, again, from that portion of New York State through eastern Pennsylvania down into Maryland, emptying into the Chesapeake Bay, and then the Ohio and Tennessee River basins. So those rivers really flow along, you know, through the area I mentioned emptying into the Mississippi River. Yeah. Because, again, it is aquatic, so it's going to stick to waterways. Right. I was going to say, I, I could easily see a population range map, or a species range map, being limited to, like, a particular watershed yeah watershed yeah, for sure it yeah. really is now there is a subspecies called the ozark hellbender so that's <laughs> cryptobranchus alleghaniensis bishopi so that's named after a, um, a herpetologist it's confined to the ozarks of northern arkansas and southern missouri there's just this little island there <laughs> the rest of the range is cryptobranchus alleghaniensis and then they repeat alleghaniensis yeah um now, there's the recent decline in the population size of the Ozark subspecies has led in recent decades to further research into those populations, hmm. including genetic analysis to determine oh. the best method of conservation. Because remember, just because these are both hellbenders, the Ozark one and then the eastern hellbender, yeah. because there's enough genetic difference to make the Ozark hellbender a subspecies, you would want to have probably different conservation plans for mm. each subspecies, the eastern hellbender and then the Ozark hellbender. Right. I feel like if you started breeding those two groups together, you would end up losing diversity. Correct. Yeah. Right. So there was actually one study in 2011 that genotyped 276 hellbenders 
<laughs> from eight Missouri River drainages. And they wanted to see, like, what is the genetic makeup of all these different hellbender populations? They found that the term Ozark subspecies is not sufficient for describing the genetic and evolutionary divergence even within the hellbenders in the Ozark region. They said, if we look at this genus, Cryptobranchus, and the species Alleghaniensis, there's actually three equally divergent genetic units. Oh, okay. One, which is Cryptobranchus Alleghaniensis Alleghaniensis, which is the Eastern Hellbender. Mm -hmm. And then within the Ozark Hellbender, the Bishopi, okay. there's an Eastern and Western populations. Oh, cool. And with this one study in 2011, they felt that genetically they were different enough isolated that they're most likely diverging on different evolutionary paths. Yeah. So they said current conservation strategies, which include captive breeding and release, they really don't have enough information right now on current genetic variability within those populations yeah. to effectively plan. Now, 99.9% .9 of the stuff that you will find on the hellbender will just say there's the eastern hellbender in the Ozark Hellbender. And really, all hmm. the conservation planning that I've seen is moving forward with that in mind. 2011, in terms of wildlife conservation, yeah. is pretty recent. I, I was going to say, because it's been, you know, 11 years now, or right. 10, 10, it was probably, they probably submitted it in right. 2010. Right. So it, it's been, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years since the research was done. I just wonder if other studies, well, clearly you would have probably had other studies right. since. I didn't if, find okay. a whole lot on this. Right. Why, why would I even question that? I'm sure you would have found the, and then there was a 2021 study, you know, but yeah. So that's something that, that I know I'll be watching, you know, just looking out now that I know about hellbenders. Yeah. Will these, the Ozark subspecies, eventually be separated into two subspecies rather than one? Yeah. Okay. We're going to talk about its habitat. So they are found in streams and shallow rivers with swiftly moving water. Um, riffle areas are super important for these guys, as well as large, flat, intermittent rocks and logs, which they need for cover and nesting sites. They avoid wider, slow-moving waters with muddy banks or just slab, flat rock bottoms. They're considered a habitat specialist, so they're adapted to fill a specific niche within a very specific environment. Hmm. One researcher said, their success is dependent on a constancy of dissolved oxygen, temperature, and flow found in swift water areas. Now that limits their stream choices to a pretty narrow spectrum. Yeah. And that probably has fed into the reason for their population decline. I was going to say, good thing people tend to leave waterways alone. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, but yeah, that really limits them. And I actually wonder about the gene flow between populations as well. So let's just do um, Alleghaniensis, Alleghaniensis. Yeah. There's a good chance that there's a lot of subpopulations within that range. That, exactly. That I, I just wonder because they need such specific stream requirements, if these populations are meeting each other and breeding together. Not so, much, because as we'll, yeah. as we'll get into later, they do not move very much. Wow, Like okay. if they move five meters within a year, like. That, that's a lot. <laughs> wow. So, and that's probably one reason too. That it's like a game of hide and seek. With them. <laughs> the longest, most boring game yeah. of hide and seek they, ever. Their whole life, they're just <laughs> staying within, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> under the same rock. <laughs> and they're not the most exciting, you know, in terms of how they live their lives. Yeah, yeah. But along with that, that's probably another reason why in the past 65 million years, they haven't changed very much. 
Hmm. So some articles refer to them as living fossils because, right. you know, they don't move around so much. There's right. not a lot of variation happening. And it's not that their genome is the same as it was millions right. of years ago, but their traits and survival strategies are probably pretty similar. Their phenotype. Yeah, because right. it's they're not really, yeah, they're not changing. They, they've, just to be clear about this, because there's some confusion when someone's like, oh, this is a... Uh, what would they say? Like this is, this the same is a, as it was. Right. Yeah. Like this is a living dinosaur. This is the right. same as it was a million years ago. They've been evolving the whole time. We just haven't seen it. Right. But in some way. But, that... but right. In some way, and sometimes those that that evolution keeps it looking kind of similar. But it's still evolution, and uh, especially if they're staying similar, that is a type of selection. It's probably purifying selection. Oh, right. And, it's working and, for him. Right. So, so, uh, and also I think I, I hear this from time to time, like, oh, people aren't evolving anymore or something. I'm like, no, we're, we're evolving. You know, we're, you cannot stop. In fact, like as a biologist who studied a lot of biochemistry and specifically I work with genomes and, and things like that, I, I can't even imagine a world where you can stop evolution. I don't even know how that would be possible. It's it's unavoidable. So no, everything is always evolving all the time. Well, not populations are always evolving. <laughs> you <gotta be laughs> you so can't careful. You, you cannot stop uh, populations from evolving. So, all right. So getting back to their specific stream choices, because they have these specific requirements, it's probably led to their populations decline because obviously waterways. They get polluted. Development happens. We're going to talk about those things. But another reason is that collectors could easily identify their specific habitats. <laughs> because they have such specific requirements, once people became familiar with them, they could be walking through a woods and notice a stream and say, that's a hellbender habitat. Nice. Along with that, these guys, they are loyal to their rocks. In individual <laughs> hellbenders range, it's less than half a square mile. <laughs> They've been found under the exact same rocks year after year. And once a hellbender <laughs> finds a favorable location, it usually doesn't stray too far from it except for breeding and hunting, and it will protect it from other hellbenders. So they are generally solitary, and while the range of two hellbenders may overlap, one is rarely present in the overlapping area when the other one is there. So again, usually if you find a hellbender, it's gonna be by itself. There was a, a 2012 study that found that most of the hellbenders that they looked at were highly sedentary greater than or equal to 50% of the observation indicated no movement um, mm. between the times that they came to see if these hellbenders had moved. And they were looking at, this study was looking at hellbenders that were released. Mm -hmm. They were looking at how far did they disperse from the release site. And they found that 69% dispersed less than or equal to 50 meters from the point of release. Wow. So not very far at all. Collectively, they found that hellbender movements indicate a short period of exploration followed by a more permanent settlement and high site fidelity. So, site fidelity. It's, uh, they really like one spot. Right. Yeah. So the, the captive reared juvenile hellbenders, we'll talk more about this later, they're well suited to release sites, but you just got to be careful about the release site you pick. You can't just say, oh, here's a stream. I'm going to release these hellbenders. They'll find a good site. <laughs> right. There better be a good site within a, with 150 feet or so. Right. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, they're not going to be happy. So they are superbly adapted to those shallow, fast-flowing rocky streams. That flattened shape that we mentioned offers little resistance to the flowing water. It allows them to crawl into those narrow spaces under rocks. Now, there's the eyesight from those beady little eyes we talked about, it's relatively poor but they have light-sensitive cells all over their body. Hmm. They even have ones on their tails that are especially fine-tuned 
that we think it may help them position safely under rocks without their tails poking out. Oh. So even when they go under a rock, they can tell, oh, my tail's sticking out. Hey, that makes a lot of sense. They also have a good sense of smell. It's probably their most important sense when hunting. There was a researcher at the National Zoo who said a tiny drop of earthworm scent in a 40-gallon tank sent the hellbanders in her lab scrambling out from under the rocks looking for food. I, I was about to say, I think my friend Zach was actually doing this research, but if if it was a her was, that yeah. was that was doing it, must not have been him. And it was at the National Zoo. Oh, National Zoo. Yeah. My friend was doing something, it, it was related to scent, where he had this big tank, I guess, and then there was, he had like three different pathways um, that were possible for the hellbender to go down, and he'd release scent down one of them. Oh, cool. I don't know if it was like a mating thing or a food-related thing, but... I definitely know he, what he was doing was scent related. Wow. And uh, I don't know if he listens to the podcast or not, but uh, we'll have to get in yeah, touch. Zach, correct me with all the stuff I just got wrong. But yeah, I do remember it was scent related. Well, let's talk about what they eat within their habitat. They are both predator and prey. They hunt a lot like eels lurking under those heavy rocks and then lunging out at their, their main food, which is crayfish <laughs> and small fish. Their gullet is enormous. They can swallow something almost as long as themselves. Wow, (laughs) that's wild. And then then they have a lateral line like fish. Mm -hmm. So that's for detecting vibration in the water. You studied fish. It was a long time ago. (laughs) I do remember the lateral line. It it was, we used it in um, like identification and stuff a lot too. so. So there was one report that noted more crayfish predation in summer and then fish made up a larger diet in uh, part of their diet in the winter when crayfish are less active. There is cannibalism mainly from the males feeding on the eggs um, Hmm. that's been known to occur within hellbender populations. The adults do have few predators. I mean, think about stream. They spend most of their time under rocks. Really, what's going to get them? Yeah. Right? Uh, And Um, what's big enough to get them too? Because part of me was like, if they were exposed, maybe I could see like a hawk or an eagle or but something, they're but they're not going to be out there for one to see. But you know what can? Hmm. River otters. Oh. <laughs> so river otters can they're, get them. They're like the same size. Right, but I mean, but, otters are tough. Yeah, right? I was going to say, I wouldn't want to fight an otter. It could, <laughs> it, could it would eat me too if, if I was up against one. So. And then along the same lines, minks. Minks are tough, okay. even though they're small. Yeah. That would be pretty crazy to see a mink go after <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but having seen minks hunt, hunt, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And then raccoons, if and they if, can, get them. Yeah, and if they're able to pull them out of the water, you know, and, and they freeze, <laughs> you know, that, that's a preserved meal for a little bit. <laughs> and then I also did, did, did come across great blue herons. Oh, okay. I mean, that would be pretty crazy. That seems pretty large for a great blue heron, but they're serious. I mean, they can take pretty big stuff. I've seen it. I mean, nothing the size of a hellbender, but I've seen them take pretty big fish. Now, predators of the young, those are diverse. Lots of fish, lots of different kinds of reptiles, both snakes and turtles. (laughs) And then again, you have that cannibalism of the eggs we talked about. Yeah. I I was actually going to say, I I could see some pretty decent sized turtles snacking on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, can we walk a little bit? Yeah, I am yeah, starting. Yeah, yeah. My one hand is. <laughs> <laughs> do you want a Do you want a hand warmer? I brought some with me. <laughs> no, no, I just need to move a little bit. <laughs> Bill does it the old-fashioned way. I do it the uh, chemical way of staying warm. All right. I'm also holding a metal pole that's the same temperature as the environment. <laughs> so, Steve has the hand warmers between his gloves and the metal pole. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell how many years we've been doing this and how many times I've made the mistake of not doing this. Is it Uh, working? Oh, it is. Yeah, my hands are like nice and toasty. Normally they'd be completely numb by now. All right, so we're going to talk about reproduction and breeding. So courtship and breeding. So hang on a sec. This is where it sounds strange. We've done a spotted salamander episode before where we went to look out for salamander eggs. When do they lay their eggs? 
uh, right when the snow is melting. Right. Yeah. So around here, Western New York, usually around March. Yeah. Sometimes into April. Now get this. For hellbenders, courtship and breeding begins in late summer. It can continue huh. as late as the end of November. Now that's depending on their region. Okay. So the farther south you're going to go. So before mating, a male excavates a brood site. He makes a saucer saucer shaped depression under a submerged rock or log. Uh-huh. And remember, the males get that bulging ring around their cloacal gland. And the males wait for a gravid female. Gravid. Do you know what gravid means? I the thing is I know the word, but just tell me. I yeah. I had not come across that word before, so in biology, it comes from the Latin gravidus, which means burdened or heavy. And it describes an animal, usually a fish or a reptile, carrying eggs internally. Hmm. Okay. So when the female approaches, it was funny. The various descriptions I found used different <laughs> verbs. And they said either the male guides, drives, attracts, or corrals her into his burrow. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it depends on who's doing the observing, what it seems like. Right. Um, and he prevents her from leaving until she lays the eggs. Over a two to three day period, the female deposits the eggs in a softball-sized yellowish mass. Hmm. Now, again, there's some discrepancy here in the number of eggs that I found. The eggs are about a quarter inch in diameter, but there can be, some sites said 150 to 200 eggs. I found 400, 450 per egg mass. Wow. On average. Now, unlike most salamanders, the hellbender fertilizes externally. So I didn't know about this, I looked it up. Apparently in the vast majority of salamander species, fertilization occurs in the cloaca. So the male oh. fertilizes the eggs when they're in the female's cloaca and then she lays hmm. them. Interesting. So in most salamanders, fertilization is internal, but the embryo development is entirely external. Hmm. Okay. But with the hellbenders, as the female lays the eggs, the male sprays the eggs with sperm. Hmm. And then he often tempts other females to lay eggs in the nest. They have found as many as 1,946 eggs in a single nest. Wow. But again, typically it's between 150 and, and maybe up to 450. Right. And this is, I mean, that's similar to fish, right? Like how they, how they... You're the fish guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think fish are external. Um, fertilizers. Yeah, fertilizers. Now, remember... I think. But cannibalism, I'm no fish guy. cannibalism does lead to much lower numbers of eggs. Yeah. So after this, the male drives the female away, and he guards the eggs. And while he's doing it, he usually rocks back and forth, undulating those lateral skin folds, mm. which circulates the water. Yep. So he can breathe. It, it increases the oxygen supply to the eggs too. Yeah. So incubation lasts for 45 to 75 days, about two months, depending on the region. And I like how when he's doing this, when he's like undulating over the eggs, he looks at one, it looks like really good. He's like, I'll, I'll just have one. <laughs> and, he, and he eats a hundred at a time. And then, it's you like know, undulating. baby Yoda. <laughs> right. <laughs> Eating the jar of eggs. Yeah. yeah. So this is what I wanted to, to mention to you. I mean, because you know about salamanders and, and amphibians when they normally hatch eggs. Here in New York, they usually lay eggs in the first week of September. The <laughs> eggs hatch in early November. Hmm. Which is weird for that is when young amphibians are being born because most other amphibians, they're born in the spring. Sure, yeah. Um, 
and I could not find. At least I think so. I mean, I'm. <laughs> well, all the frog species that I know of around oh. here. You know, all of the the salamander species. Right. We that see I the know. egg masses in the in, in the, the water. Yeah. yeah. In the spring. Yeah. And I could not find like what is the evolutionary advantage of that, hmm. right? Maybe it's because they want the young to be able to eat those eggs and stuff. Oh, but those eggs are in like still ponds and stuff like that that we're thinking of. Salamanders and frogs. Yeah, salamander and frog eggs. Like it's not like it's in flowing water or anything. Maybe it has to do with the fact that they're in flowing water. Right. So the hellbenders, they do undergo the metamorphosis, but not until about a year and a half of life. When they're roughly about five inches long, they lose their larval gills. And until then, they are confused with mud puppies, but you, again, you can differentiate them through that toe number. Yeah. Um, after metamorphosis, the hellbenders absorb oxygen through their skin folds, and again, that is why they have a need for fast-moving, oxygenated water. Mm-hmm. If a hellbender ends up in an area of slow-moving water, not enough of it's going to pass over its skin in a given time, and it won't get enough oxygen. And then, does it start migrating, or is it die? <laughs> or both. <laughs> it was funny. I, t- I took out a line here because one article I read just said, if it does not get enough oxygen, it will not do well. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, that's not very specific. <laughs> I mean, but to be honest, the need to migrate, you know, maybe that isn't doing well, you know, it's I, wasting so, a lot of energy. To... So honestly, I don't know. Does it die? Does it move? I'm not sure. A little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to talk about its status. Mm. So researcher, research single, married, <laughs> curious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so research, research has shown a likely dramatic decline in populations. Notice that word likely. Mm-hmm. In most locations within its range, in New York State, it's listed as a special concern species, <laughs> and has been since '83. So that's just below endangered. Right, and that could also partly be due to so little of its range in New York. Oh, sorry, so it's just below threatened. And it could have to do with this limited range. Yeah. At the state level, it is listed as endangered. And, and really, in, in every area within its range, it does have some type of protection. But depending on the state you're in, <laughs> the state level of protection is going to be different. Some places it's threatened. Some places it's endangered. Here in New York State, it's just special concern. But there is a lack of basic life history and distribution information. There's just insufficient historic data on population densities. And that means there's a, a shortage of knowledge on long-term population trends. <laughs> like, if we don't know what the populations were 50 years ago, right. we don't know how they've changed. But the available evidence does suggest that the numbers have declined. And there's little evidence of successful reproduction recently, within recent decades. I would also guess that if, like, one way to measure that is if their potential habitat has declined. Well, right. Then that's going to be obvious that you know they have fewer places to spread into and not just the amount of habitat but the quality of the habitat True. how it's been polluted and degraded right and that goes right into what i'm going to say there are reasons for the dis- decline the main one is destruction of riverine habitats um, created by dams and other development dams i mean think about it that's going to eliminate that fast moving water those riffle right. areas lower dissolved oxygen mm-hmm. um, river pollution unfortunately the chytrid fungus has been found oh. um, throughout the Ozark subspecies. Mm-hmm. Who, who else was the chytrid? That's all amphibians. Okay, because I mean, yeah. we had talked about it in another episode, yep. I think. So. Uh, and then over-harvesting for commercial and scientific purposes. The biggest mm. problem for hellbenders is siltation of their streams. 
Okay. Um, and that comes from construction work, especially road work, yeah. development, and then agriculture. Poor yeah. agriculture resulting in soil loss and so water waste. So is siltation, is that how murky the water is? Yes. Okay. So there's sediment in the water floating in the water. Right. And then another problem, which has been a historical problem, is killing of hellbenders by fishermen who accidentally catch hellbenders mm. and erroneously fear that they're venomous or poisonous. Mm. Um, just people killing them because they thought they were problem animals. There's also a belief that they harm fish populations, and they don't. They, they're eating mostly crayfish. Yeah. Federally speaking, there was a review within the past couple of decades, and Fish and Wildlife, they determined that the Ozark hellbender is an endangered species. It's estimated that there was a 75% population decline since the 80s. Hmm. Okay. And at last check, there were less than 600 remaining in the wild. Wow. Pretty small. That's tiny. And then, as I mentioned, that chytrid fungus, it's been detected in all Missouri populations of the Ozark hellbender. Not good news. Yeah. But the larger population, the eastern hellbender, isn't listed as endangered. It's not even listed as threatened. <laughs> but they do say that it is in need of protection. It's right. just the levels haven't declined to the point where it's going to trigger protection under the Endangered Species Act. But they would just assume that that might be projected yes. for the species. If things so. don't change. Yeah. So that the need to conserve these species, these remaining populations, I mean, that's going to come through protecting habitats and then augmenting their numbers through reintroduction. Mm -hmm. And we need to be sure that work is done on both of the subspecies. More work needs to be done on how oh, many sorry. subspecies are there really? Right, right. Because we do, as we mentioned, we want to preserve that genetic diversity. Yeah, and it would be nice to see them sampling the eastern hellbender populations like all throughout the range. Right. Because that, that would be interesting to see. Yeah, because how different are the hellbenders here in southern New York State from the ones in northwest Virginia? You would uh, imagine there would be some genetic diversity I there. I think so, yeah. yeah. And is it enough yeah. know, to, to say we need to be conserving them differently? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of head starting programs that have been started. Eggs are collected from the wild, and then they're raised in captivity for re-release at a less vulnerable time. Because mm. you, you have to imagine these tiny little hellbenders, when they first hatch, they're just so susceptible to getting eaten. Yeah. So they keep them and raise them until they're, I found anywhere from four to seven years old. So they're keeping them for a long time. Wow. So and that's pretty much until maturity then. That's yeah. one thing they were doing at the Buffalo Zoo. Mm -hmm. the Ozark, which, which when people talk about zoos negatively, and don't get me wrong, there's there's a lot to say. Right. But at the same time, a lot of these zoos do work like this too. Sure. And when I say a lot, I don't know if it's all zoos, a tiny <laughs> fraction of zoos, but you know, there are zoos doing good work. Sure. I don't know. So there, there is good stuff happening. But. I would recommend because for a long time, I wouldn't go to zoos. Mm -hmm. But working at, at the Nature Center, we had volunteers that worked at the zoo and through talking to them, you'd find out what zoos do that is good so it's not all good it's not all bad but i would recommend listeners check out stuff you should know did an excellent episode on zoos mm. are they good or are they bad yeah and they did a very what i felt was a very fair look at these are the good sides of zoos they talked a lot about um whatever that condition is that affects animals in zoos what is it zoocosis or something i where, don't know yeah where animals will just start to pace back and forth or they'll hurt themselves uh, yeah. it's almost like a mental condition with these animals hmm. from being in captivity it's funny you you weren't going to zoos but you're at the nature center which is essentially a zoo but none of the animals are alive they're all stuffed <laughs> and on shelves now hey <laughs> I always told people at Beaver Meadow we didn't use any animal parts until the animal was done using them first. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Although that wasn't entirely true. It's res respectable. That wasn't entirely true. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right. Wow. <laughs> it just got dark. 
So good news about hellbenders though. The Ozark hellbender was successfully bred in captivity for the first time at the St. Louis Zoo in 2011. And this is pretty crazy. They built two outdoor streams, 40 feet long and six feet deep. They had natural gravel, large rocks for hiding, artificial nest, nest boxes, and that's where they discovered the, the fertilized eggs. And they even had a nearby building that housed state-of-the-art life support equipment that filtered the water and maintained the streams at temperature. Wow. So there's a, a lot of work going into helping these critters in the different states within their range. I mean, that, I mean, that whole setup sounds pretty serious. So. so if you live in North Carolina, look online because from what I could tell, there are volunteer opportunities for people who can help with Hellmender surveys and going out to find how populations are doing. I tried to find in New York State because I would love to go out and check that out would some be hellbenders. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I couldn't find anything for just for the general public. You had to okay. be part of some program. I bet we can get on something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah. I'm gonna get to that. I'm gonna get to that. Yeah, I and then of course we'd have to make it into a like a little like video short like we did with Wayne. So. Right. Yeah. Now as far as management and research needs for the future, obviously we need to continue to survey and monitor long range the populations. We need that information to develop a recovery plan. Big importance is investigating larval and juvenile habit, habits. There's so much we don't know about their survivorship, their habitat use. We just don't know how, what they do within those first few years of their life. They're yeah. so hard to find and observe that very little is known <laughs> about the natural history of juvenile and larval hellbenders. I wonder how many eggs actually hatch. Forget the number that are I actually laid. had that. Oh, you said that did, you said how many I don't were? think I said it. I must have skipped it. 0.5 per 250. So, out of, so out of 501. One. That would have been a better... Uh, <laughs> that, that male's real sna really snacking. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so one out of 500 survived. So every, I don't think he eats all. Every other year, <laughs> he lets one live. That's right. Oh, I missed one. It was in one of my folds. <laughs> How did I miss that one? <laughs> it's, it almost sounds like they're getting born on accident at this point. <laughs> but the, the recovery program, the one article I read... They said that one year they had like a 95% um, wow. egg hatching rate, hmm. which compared to natural conditions is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get much better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of surprising. That's, I mean, just based on that one occurrence that so many would survive. Right. Because uh, I feel like uh, you don't get that, you know, with, well, it's a totally different story with fish, I think. When hatcheries and stuff like that? Yeah, there's like this critical period in fish where if they don't eat enough, by the time their yolk sack runs out of, you know, of yolk, <laughs> um, they basically are done for. So, yeah, I wonder how that works for them. So, I'm glad you mentioned that because there was actually a, a little bit I skipped here in my notes about the young. Because hmm. the young, when they hatch, they're only about an inch long, but they do have that yolk sack. So you saying that okay. triggered it in my mind. And that's what they use for their source of energy for their, their first few months. Right. And they have to transition themselves off of that yolk. Right. Or else they're not going to survive because that yolk's only going to last for so long. Yeah. As it's I a non-renewable resource, I think. I'm it's one time only, right? Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned a second ago, we don't know what's happening to the larvae. They're either suffering high mortality, maybe falling prey to fish or other predators, or they're utilizing some part of the aquatic habitat that makes them difficult to locate and document. So that's one area of research that, that needs to happen. Anglers, fishing, and hellbender habitat, they should also be educated to understand that they're not dangerous, they don't deplete game fish populations. And then those captive breeding programs are huge, coupled with habitat cleanup. 
yeah. um, especially reestablishing riffle areas and adequate stream flow. Now, there's one thing that came up in my research that may lead us to maybe be able to get our hands on a hellbender at some <laughs> or at least see some in person. Yeah. It's called historical ecology. Have you heard about this? Mm -mm. So I had never heard about this. This is a growing field of ecology where historical artifacts, everything from everyday artifacts like newspaper articles all mm -hmm. the way up to DNA, environmental DNA, are used as clues to how the condition of a species, a community, or a landscape has changed over time. Environmental DNA is kind of interesting. Have you have you read much about it? Just in relation yeah. to this, just this one paper. Because I, I think that's how they've discovered like invasive species, even in Lake Erie and, and Lake Ontario, things like that. And they've detected it in the environmental DNA well before they've actually found an individual of that invasive species. Right. Yeah, yeah. which is pretty cool because sometimes things are hard to find, but if we can, you know, <laughs> exactly. if we can find evidence that they were there by, you know, locating some of their DNA, which this is the type of work I've never done and I've only really read little things on it. I, you know, well, I you could... can find evidence of species that aren't here anymore, too. Oh, right? I didn't even consider that. Yeah. That people may have never thought were in a certain place, hmm. but the habitat is right. Yeah. So they're using everything from DNA to, to newspaper articles to look out not just species, but communities and landscapes have changed, as well as to get clues about the causes of those changes. Hmm. So they're, they're trying to establish a historical context for species declines, and they may be making use of information sources that have typically fallen outside of the scope of scientific research. Mm -hmm. So the supporters say that, hey, this approach has the potential to fill many of the data gaps that so often plague conservation practice. So there was a, a dissertation that I came across from a researcher. She was located at Buff State, but mm -hmm. now she's at uh, Canisius. Her name's Robin Foster. And she wrote a paper <laughs> called Lessons from the Past, where she's really looking into historical records of hellbenders, trying to find out what were populations of these critters like 100 years ago or longer, or even 50 years ago. Interesting. Trying to use as many different data sources as possible, including <laughs> environmental DNA. And this was a fascinating rabbit hole once I went started going down it and was like, whoa, there's too much here for me just to slip in at this point in this episode. Yeah. So I contacted her. Oh, really? And I said, hey, would you be willing to come on to our podcast? I mean, she's at Kenesha's College. It's a, a, folks, That's pretty it's a close. private college in Buffalo. Yeah. And would you be willing to come on the podcast to talk about this? She got back to me yesterday. She's a fan of the show. No way. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So she said she just has to clear it with um, their publicity department to make sure it's okay. But yeah. Cool. So that will be a future episode at some point. I don't know if it's going to be a sit-down chat or we can get her out into the field or what. But I'll see if I can get her to take us out into the field. Nice. Right, good work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good work so far. You haven't pulled it off yet. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. All right. So I wanted to wrap up with some myths. I know we've we've talked about some of them. Right. Um, I made reference to the fact that there were bounties on these animals okay. at a certain point in history. Now, I looked back, and part of this comes from Dr. Foster's research, but what I found is that a lot of the articles from the early 1900s referring to bounties on these animals, mm -hmm. it was really unclear if they were referring to hellbenders or mud puppies. Because oh. I really wonder at that time if people just didn't know the difference between right. the two. They just saw a gigantic salamander a foot or more it could have been a mud puppy right uh, because many of the articles refer to bounties on water dogs which was a common name for either species okay so it's tough to say it's a but problem with common names but <laughs> right you know but there definitely were bounties and people got bounties for hellbenders yeah 
other misconceptions. We already talked about how they're not venomous, poisonous. They're not toxic. Although I do have to say, I did come across at least a couple articles from reputable sources, not scientific articles, mm-hmm. that refer to their toxic skin. Hmm. But when I tried to find any kind of scientific biology backing of that, that it's toxic, I couldn't yeah. find anything on that. Hmm. So as far as I can tell, if it is toxic, it's not toxic to people in any it, meaningful way. It, it was just a, like a biologist out there is like, I got to protect these things. And they thought that maybe <laughs> by telling people that they were toxic, yeah. it's like, you do not want to go into these habitats because there's these toxic monsters. There you go. There. They are toxic. Yeah. <laughs> Don't touch them. Yeah. <laughs> there's a slew of people going out to hunt them because they hear they're toxic. So researchers do believe that the mucus on them does prevent exposure to pathogens. It protects them from abrasions, mm-hmm. but it's not harmful to humans. <laughs> As I've mentioned, they don't harm fish populations. And honestly, what's good for trout is usually good for hellbenders in terms of their <laughs> habitat. One biologist said they don't ruin a fishing rod if you catch one. I, for some reason, that was a, a belief that they're going to ruin your fishing rod. I don't know how. I mean, if you have a cheap fishing rod, you, you said these things can get over five pounds, right? Right. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how oh, much. Maybe you could break it. You're saying maybe. Yeah, maybe. that's what I mean. Yeah. Um, and they're not, and the researchers or the biologist said they're not bad luck. To the contrary, one could argue <laughs> bad luck. these harmless giant salamanders are very good luck because of their role in the ecosystem as an as and an indicator of good water quality for people, fish, and wildlife alike. Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so but, many, um, actually, they're good luck because... But let's the, just not talk about luck. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I knew you were going to say something about that. I know. I, I'm a snob, and, uh, and uh, yeah. Steve makes his own luck. <laughs> yeah. Fortune favors the prepared mind, Bill. All right? But the part about good water quality... Fortune's just another name for luck. You're right. Shoot. <laughs> they are considered an indicator of good water quality. And that ties into what we talked about before, about their populations declining because of pollution and other things. That biologist, though, the one you referred to as a nerd, they did go on to say that if an angler does keep their day's catch on a stringer in the water, and it happens to be near a hellbender, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon that a hellbender might uh, make a meal out of their, their day's catch. So if you're leaving your, your fish out in an easy place for them to scavenge, you can't blame them for taking it. <laughs> and then, folks, I know this is a, a sore spot for a lot of people, but if you're in a stream, especially a fast-moving stream with large rocks where hell, hellbenders might be around, leave the rocks where they are. <laughs> I know. I don't know if you've had conversations. I've had conversations with outdoorsy people who feel that moving rocks is not a big deal. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to... I, I'll look under rocks, but I try to put them exactly back right. the way they were. You don't know what larvae are on there, eggs yeah. are on there, anything. But, but even... even I will say I I say that as if I'm not doing anything wrong but like just by moving the rock you can disturb things even if you're putting it right back but uh, I I mean I usually do it I feel like after the eggs are laid and all that and they're Steve's rationalized <laughs> yeah yeah this is major copium here as, as the kids say but uh I haven't heard that copium, yeah, copium. Like it. <laughs> it's okay when you do it. yeah I'm talking more about people making cairns and stuff like that and rocks I hate cairns <laughs> <laughs> Both kinds. Actually, you know what? You're it, not going to believe I never made that connection before. <laughs> but, okay, so when you're when you're hiking in New York, Karens are just things that kids make for fun. C-A-I-R-N-S. Yeah. Yeah, they're like those rock structures people build. Not K-A-R-E-N-S. Yeah. When I was out west, if you don't have Karens, 
you're dead. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. So, but, um, but over here, people just build them for fun. So if you see them in the east, you can knock them down. Who cares? But if you're out west, do not touch them. <laughs> Unless you're in the east over Sri Lanka. Right? <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. That's for sure. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up with a quote from Robin Foster. So she said, in the late 1800s, there were targeted campaigns to kill off hellbenders. People thought they were vicious animals that depleted fish populations, but they aren't vicious. I've handled more than 200 of them and I've never been bitten. I mentioned that before, right? Mm -hmm. They eat mostly crayfish. They're not voracious predators of fish or fish eggs and they're a living fossil. Oh, Steve loves that. <laughs> they haven't changed from the time of the dinosaurs. They are a treasure that has survived here in New York state for millions and millions of years. And I can't bear the idea of losing them without a fight. Uh-huh. Just be quiet for now. <laughs> She's not talking about their genome, so right. I'll give it a pass, I okay. guess. With that in mind, we want to give a shout out to the young members, the teenage members of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Pennsylvania Student Leadership Council, because they were heavily involved in writing and advocating on behalf of legislation to make the Hellbender Pennsylvania's state amphibian. Cool. They hope to raise awareness of the Hellbender's struggling population and that doing so would contribute to clean water efforts. So the legislation was stalled for a while. This was back in 2018 because some House members, they wanted the Whirlies salamander to be the state amphibian. And honestly, uh, I couldn't even make a call between the two because I don't know anything about Whirlies, but it's I a, say cool about the Hellbender because Bill just talked to me about it for over an hour. But. Well, it's one of the woodland salamanders. It's like the redback salamander, or, okay. but it's not like in great danger or anything like sure. that. It's, but it's named after some guy from Pennsylvania. Um, mm, but poorly. thankfully, the hellbender won out, and in 2019, the Pennsylvania governor signed legislation that made the eastern hellbender Pennsylvania's official state amphibian. Nice. Yeah. yeah. 2019, that was a decent year. <laughs> that was an okay year. Up until <laughs> October. <laughs> All right, so. For anyone listening to this 20 years in the future, <laughs> we're talking about COVID. I think December, I think it was October 2019. So. No, it's still going to be around by then, right? Probably. <laughs> All right. I do want to mention a friend of mine. I don't think you've ever met her. She was my former neighbor, Melissa Borowitz Beatrice. I promised her that in our next episode, we would mention her book, which was released this fall. Right. She created a kid's book uh, called Life Among the Milkweed. Mm. So she used macro photography and her knowledge from raising monarchs every summer for I don't know how many years just to create a, a beautiful work highlighting all of the life that you can find on milkweed, not just monarchs. Cool. Um, so check it out, folks. You can go to lifeamongthemilkweed.com, but she also has a Facebook page, Life Among the Milkweed. What, what's the, what, sorry, what ages is it for? It's a, a kid's book. I would say it's probably for, I mean, with young kids, anything, anybody under five, you can have the grown-up reading to them. Yeah. But I mean, the pictures are big enough and detailed enough where even little kids will be into it. So I'd say anywhere from three to <laughs> 10. Wow, nice. In that range. I, I'm sure my niece and nephew are already sick of <laughs> science and nature books, but uh, but I could, you know, I would get it for myself and then pass it on to them when they're old enough. Don't worry, because <laughs> there's always room for new ones coming in. Right, right, yeah. right, right. So we also want to thank... Oh, for, I'm definitely buying it. So. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And it is available on Amazon. I checked. Cool. So check it out. Melissa Borowitz Beatrice, Life <laughs> Among the Milkweed. Cool. We also want to thank our new patrons. Through Patreon.com, we have Chris Root. Oh, Chris. Who's our buddy from uh, yeah. Bird Counting. So thank you, Chris, for... Mm -hmm. I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> <laughs> we also want to thank Brandon Ruchill. I 
apologize if I pronounced that wrong, and Daniel Smith. So three new patrons nice. over the past three month. new Three new patrons over the past three months. <laughs> <laughs> folks, if you do want to support the podcast financially, patreon.com is a great way to do that. It allows us to keep the podcast going, to keep it free, and to do new and interesting things, like mm-hmm. hopefully go out with uh, Dr. Foster. Yeah. <laughs> and every episode, we... Give a shout out to all of our patrons, but we like to highlight our top patrons and stick around for the very end of the episode. We've been having my daughter, Violet, or listeners read our list of top patrons. Um, So please do stick around for that. If you are interested in reading our list of patrons, please contact us. No, no, no. You're framing it wrong, Bill. If you're interested in immortalizing yourself (laughs) through our podcast. (laughs) Contact us. We'll set that up for you. Yeah, we'll send you the list to read off. And if... You can't right now financially support the podcast. One of the best ways to support us is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. We want to thank our newest iTunes reviewers, Smash and Fenrir, Chris the Tuck, and The Bird Licker. (laughs) I don't know what that's about. That person's now banned from bird banding. (laughs) But they left us a very nice review. Nice. And I do want to say to Smash and Fenrir, whoever left that review, they wanted to know about the Pile book because they said we've mentioned the Pile book several times. So the book is by Peter Pile, and that's P-Y-L-E. I can't remember. I should have written down the exact title of the book. (laughs) But if you put in Peter Pyle, um, Bird Banding, Bird Banding Guide, um, there's two volumes. I would assume it's still in print, correct? Oh, yeah, it is still in print. Yep. Because it definitely looks like an older book. It's like this big, thick, um, like, I don't know. It's It's almost like a textbook, a soft cover textbook. It's wild, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We also want to give a thank you to your brother, Brian. Oh, really? Because our last episode, the Jewelweed episode, mm-hmm. I neglected to mention that he gave us the idea for the Jewelweed episode. Oh, wow. I can't believe I forgot that. Well, you betrayed my brother. <laughs> so thank you, Brian. <laughs> he didn't mention anything to you about it? I don't know. I don't listen to when he says stuff. No, no. <laughs> and I also want to apologize to any listeners out there. I'm thinking specifically of Doodle Dude 82 and Kazzy's. Mm-hmm. There have been many times where I've gone onto one of our social media or our Patreon Patreon mm-hmm. pages. I am not someone who goes on those sites regularly. So very often people have left us messages. Yeah. Like I was just on Patreon. There were two messages there that have been there for months. Oh no. Like I'm so unfamiliar with that website. Yeah. Beyond each month or every episode going to get our current list. Yeah. That I didn't even notice. Oh, there's a little button over here that says we have messages waiting. Yeah. So if you would like to get in touch with us and hopefully have us respond within a reasonable amount of time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can try to reach us through one of our social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. That is probably the best way to get in touch with us because I would say you and I check that on a pretty regular oh, yeah. basis. And we always encourage you to visit our home on the web, thefieldguidespodcast.com. Have I forgotten anything? I don't think so. All right. Then very last thing, (laughs) parents, get those kids outside, even on cold days like today. Let them get muddy, dirty, snowy, flip over rocks, logs. I challenge you to get muddy (laughs) in 10 degree weather. Have some fun outside. (laughs) Folks, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time. See you guys.
All right, guys, so this episode is sponsored by Gumleaf USA. So if you've been a longtime listener, you'll know that this company makes high quality, super comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. And I'm actually wearing a pair called the Field Welly, and Bill has the Royal Zips. The Royal Zip. Yeah. So they're handcrafted for comfort and function, and I actually think they look pretty good. They have a very simple design. They're 100% waterproof, durable, and made with 85% natural rubber. So you won't have to worry about them cracking. They have styles for men and women, and they're great for birding, botanizing, or any outdoor activity, like recording a podcast. (laughs) So if you're interested in high-quality tall rubber boots, we recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and exploring their products. It's also a great way to support us and to help us do cooler things with the podcast in the future. So there will be a link in the episode notes and on our website. Including a discount code for our Patreon members. And once again, here is Violet, who is kind enough to read this month's Top patrons. Eric, Alyssa, the Hebranks, Mary, Todd, Callie, Sean C, Rich, Jessica, Rochelle, the Drunk Phytologist, Orange Julianne, Diane, Ken, Jonathan A, Brandon, Quixote, Robert P, Max, Jake, Melissa and Dusty Arizona, Celia, Kelly, Sarah, Andy, Helen, MD, Judy, Ben, Lauren, Jane, Doodle Dude 82, Gail and Mac, Cassies, Jeff, Gooseg, Bruce, Esther, John W, Bethany, we name the dog Indy, Rob, Hannah. Well done, Violet. Thank you.